Please turn also to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in the middle of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This also is God's holy word. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, All will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we come before you and we thank you, Father, for your word. That your word is truth. And Father, your word points out the things that our natural selves don't want to hear. But Father, you're the one who gives eternal life and that you have chosen to use your word to give it. And for those to whom you have opened eyes and ears, Father, help us to receive wonderful things from your word. Father, we pray that none of us here would be held in slavery to the fear of death but instead that we might walk in newness of life, trusting in Jesus Christ who indeed frees us from the bondage to sin, and he gives us eternal life that only he can give. Father, if there there are any here who have not embraced the good news of the gospel, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work. We pray, Father, that the gospel would go forth with power. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. We pray that your servant will be humbled. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Have you noticed how, <clears throat> how it is that our culture attempts to isolate us from the appearance of death? Any reminder of death, we try to set it far away. Perhaps there was once a time <clears throat> when people died, because people died all the time, that you would hear wailing, that people lived in much closer proximities to one another. So when someone was in the stages of dying, there would be pain and you'd hear wailing. And uh, little kids would go to each other's homes, which seems like happens less and less and less now. But they would hear this, that grandma or grandpa is dying. They're going through their stages of dying. And eventually, they die. But now we have... People are put in certain places far removed from everyone else. Because we don't like the thought 
of death. We don't want to be reminded that, that death is a reality. And so oftentimes even <clears throat> death is not a topic that ought to be discussed in certain circles. Every culture has this. They have euphemisms for death. This person passed away. Other people who uh, use the English language but not in our environment would say that person is no more because they don't want to say that person died. So you see how no one likes to talk about death. And here we come to God's word, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And the author comes to the realization that regardless of how wise man is, the worldly wisdom, the human wisdom, what man cannot do and has not done and will never do is, is conquer death by his own wisdom. This is the reality we have to come to. There's no conquering of death. There's no avoiding of death by human wisdom. When we think about this book of Ecclesiastes, what the author attend, intends to do, there's different ways to arrive at wisdom. Sometimes it's you give the wisdom right then and there. Perhaps you've realized that that is not the best way. Ecclesiastes does it another way. It exhausts someone of all of their so-called wisdom, and then it presents a different option. So it's as if the author was saying, what is the logical conclusion to your beliefs? So you exclude God. God does not exist. Okay, let's look how your life is. Let's look at where you are. Since God doesn't exist, we'll follow you a bit in your line of thought. When you begin with man, or rather, when you begin by excluding God, that this is the end result. This is madness. This is grievous. It's futility. It's striving after wind. And it's arriving at the same conclusion, but with a different method. That all of life is meaningless and worthless without God. So in the first chapter, this author, we call him Kohelet. It just means uh, the preacher or the, the one, the teacher, the, the one who gathers people. That he mentions that with increasing wisdom or increasing knowledge, it leads to greater vexation and greater pain. So he addresses this matter. Oh, well, wait a minute. If we're talking about pain, and the more you know, the more pain you have, he says, well, then let's talk about something better. Let's talk about pleasure. So then in, verse, in chapter 2, he addresses the matter of pleasure. And with pleasure, he says that there's no true solution. Because the end result is that the eye is not full, the ear is not full, and uh, those pleasures aren't forever lasting. And, and then in today's passage, he comes back again a second time. A second time he revisits the topic of wisdom. But he doesn't want you to come up with the wrong impression. So he, he covers some things. And then he says, let's look at the end result. So... Uh, wisdom, yes, it results in greater vexation and greater pain, but I'm not saying that wisdom is altogether bad. The end result is that wisdom, human wisdom, 
cannot bring us to victory over death. So the truth that we see in this passage, though human wisdom is much superior to foolishness, it is powerless to save your soul from death. Though human wisdom is much superior to foolishness, it is powerless to save your soul from death. We'll look at this in two points. The first is the commendation of human wisdom. And the second, the condemnation of human wisdom. So the first, the commendation of human wisdom in verses 12 through the first half of 14. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he takes this second look. In chapter 1, the author covered wisdom, and he said it results in vexation and greater pain. But he takes this second look. Because he, he wants to make a more thorough treatment. Let's not miss anything. Let's make sure we caught everything. And let's make sure that we don't let you come to any of these wrong conclusions. Earlier he said, wisdom is vexation and knowledge increases sorrow. But he wants to avoid this huge pitfall. He wants to avoid the pitfall if you say, wait a minute. Are you saying then that, uh, that human wisdom is actually bad, that it's actually worse than human foolishness. And he's saying, no, we're not saying that at all. Because you realize there comes a time and a point in a person's life and in a society when good becomes evil and evil becomes good. Isaiah warned about this. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So when someone comes to the point in his life, when a society gets to the point where good becomes evil and evil becomes good, that's typically the point that the, the strings that hold that society get together start to become broken, and it implodes. Now, I'm not a historian, but you look at certain cultures, they rise and then they fall. And you think about Rome, Rome and its glory, eventually it it came to an end. But was this eventually what led to its downfall? Is that good became evil, evil became good. Societies fall when those things happen. People are hardened in sin when they call good evil and evil good. He makes the argument in verse 12, for what can the man do who comes after the king? So many people ask, well, what is he, what is he actually saying here? It seems like what he's saying is, you, you look at the king. <clears throat> he's talking about, so we think Solomon, or someone who's a super Solomon, he's made all these arguments starting from chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. And this Solomon is saying, hey, I had all these resources, uh, I had all this wisdom given from God, and this is the best that I could come up with. That its wisdom is madness, and its folly, its vexation. And regarding pleasure, 
What person could have had more resources and more time and more money to invest in wealth? And he says, wealth doesn't satisfy. And in, in uh, sex, well, Solomon had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. So if he wasn't satisfied with it, then who could be? So what he's saying here is, for what can the man do who comes after the king other than conclude the same thing that the king did? So also, he makes these two arguments. Verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. So this word for gain, we often hear this word mentioned in Ecclesiastes. Gain, or profit, or advantage. So here, he's saying that human wisdom is still better than human folly. And he gives these two arguments. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. He also says the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he's still saying that human wisdom is better than human folly. Maybe the simplest proof of that is, children, have you ever, have you ever tried walking in darkness? So if you have your room, and if your room is like anything like the room of someone I know, if you turn off the light and you try to walk around in that room, what's going to happen? You're going to step on all those Lego pieces, right? They're going to poke a hole in your foot, and your foot will be bleeding. Or worse yet, you hit something like a garbage can in the middle of the room, and then you stumble and fall. And that's no fun. And here, the author is saying that foolishness is bad because it's like walking in darkness. Eventually, you stumble and fall. And if you fall, you might hit your head on something and something very bad. But there can be simple examples. Perhaps you can think of many about how human wisdom, even worldly wisdom, is better than foolishness. When you think about the medical advancements, uh, on, on one hand, our technology has improved, that there have been medical advances, that people can cut a little hole in your thigh or in your arm and send tubes into your blood vessels, into your heart, So people who have heart issues can have these stents placed in there and their life can be improved. Their life can be prolonged. That these are good things. These are good things to have. And that's human wisdom. Perhaps also, you think about more common things. There are rules. Do not attempt to buy an item when everyone wants to buy it. Or sell an item when everyone wants to sell it. Does that make sense? It's the, the law of supply and demand. When everyone wants it, the supply will be low. The price will be high. So when everyone else is buying it, don't buy it. Sell it if you have it. Do you think like a winter coat? Around now or another month, it's a good time to buy a winter coat because those coats are going 40%, 50% off or more. But if... Come October, you say, hey, my last winter coat wore out. I need to buy one. That's not a time to buy a winter coat. That's what everyone's buying. These are common things about human wisdom. Buy when everyone else is selling. Sell when everyone else is buying. You'll do better off. You think about how some of these things can make sense to us. 
As Christians, we're never to be uh, Luddites, people who despise technology and think that somehow being old-fashioned is better. We look at people who, uh, who don't drive automobiles, who still uh, have horse and buggies, or don't use electricity. Right? So if you think about that is, that, is that being faithful? Is somehow it's shunning human technology? So we're, we're not called to do that. But we are called to realize the limits of human technology. That our hope must not be in medical advancements. It's easy for people who work in that field, as they see these things coming, for us to say, wow, one day, one day man will conquer death by his advancements. But you think back in the garden. It is the Lord who said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He didn't say, you might die. If you're smart enough, you won't. You, you would die, and then if you're smart enough, you'll get your way out of it. No, he said, you will surely die. There's no conquering of death outside of Christ. That we, we should never believe any of these truths. Hey, you know what? We're prolonging life so long that eventually no one's ever going to die. And if you believe that, then I have some oceanfront property in Oklahoma to sell you. So you think about it. There's no conquering of death. No one's done it yet. And God in his word has told us that death comes to all men. The wages of sin is death. There's only one who has conquered death. That is Jesus. So this is a commendation of human wisdom. We have the condemnation of human wisdom in verses 14b through 17. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How does the wise, how the wise dies just like the fool? So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. Here, the author takes a marked turn in the second half of verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. He's not talking about the misfortunes in life, about the griefs, about the loss, about theft, and other things. Now, those, those things are all true, that those do happen to the wise as well as the fool. But what he's actually getting at is that human wisdom cannot prevent death. It hasn't been done. It won't be done. It can't be done. Notice also what the author does. After he makes this, this rule, yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. He's speaking third person. But then in verse 15, he, he turns it back on himself. He is willing to address that for himself. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. That same event. But then notice that as he continues, as he finishes in verse 16, 
He says, how the wise dies just like the fool. So he goes from impersonal third person, he directs it to himself that this event, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. But then when he talks about the death, he excludes himself. How the wise dies just like the fool. So he goes back to the third person. But I hope you can see what I want you to see here is that the wise dies just like the fool. But I want to ask you, though you are wise, do you acknowledge that you too will someday die just like the fool? That's what I want you to see. I want you to conclude. And I want you to repeat after me. I also will die someday. It doesn't matter how good a health you have. It doesn't matter how young you are. The wages of sin is death. You and I will one day give up the ghost and die. That's a problem every one of us needs to wrestle with and deal with. <clears throat> Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is God speaking. Man in his pomp will not remain. So there is a pride that says, the things that I have, my house won't ever fall apart. My body won't ever fall apart. But realize... There's mercy from God when our bodies start to fall apart. Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. When you go to the doctor to get that checkup, whether blood test or whatever type of tests, you know, you think about people, by God's grace, who are cancer survivors. We have at least a few of them in our midst. And not just one time, but two time cancer survivors. And, you know, we, we have to get all kinds of tests. Even if you didn't have cancer, that there's tests that you have. And you look at those things and those numbers. And perhaps, let's say as I do when I look at those. That's a reminder. I'm not going to live forever. I can't grab on too tightly to the things of this world. I have to realize, someday, the grip has to let go. I'm going to let go of everything in this life. Where will you go? That's the question. That's the question. That's the, that's the grief that the author here is coming to. So he asks, why then have I been so very wise? Why am I trying to be wise? That's a rhetorical question. <clears throat> the obvious answer is for no lasting reason because we're all going to die. And he, he mentions <clears throat> the, the wicked backlash, meaning that the insult to injury. Verse 16. <clears throat> for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long, been long forgotten. So not only will we die, but he's saying that even the memory of us will die. Even the memory of us will die. 
How many people, <clears throat> how many people have it such that their names are still remembered? Maybe their name is attached to a building. Maybe their name is attached to some type of a, a professorship or a chair. Uh, you know, the, the chair of so-and-so, this so-and-so's chair. Or you think about someone who gives a whole lot of wealth, and a building is named after them. In certain instances, they give a whole lot of wealth, and they have the building named after someone else. Well, that's great. But realistically, how many people are going to be remembered? Perhaps your parents have asked you that question, hey, after I die, how often are you going to go visit my grave? Perhaps you've asked your children that question. Well, realistically, what difference does it make? Your, your parents are going to be one of two places. And the grave is just a reminder of them. Ultimately, we should honor the dead. I'm not saying we should despise them. We should honor them. But what difference does that make? Then you think about how man forgets things so easily. We forget people. We forget people that we don't see regularly. Yet the Lord is one who never forgets. Isaiah 49, 15 to 16. Can a man forget, sorry, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. This is God's promise that he doesn't forget us. He acknowledges, he sees us in our misery. You think about the instances in the scriptures where it says that God remembers. And perhaps you're first thinking, wait a minute, uh, God remembers. Uh, I didn't know that God forgot. So God remembers, but I didn't ever know that he forgot. And this is perhaps a human way of understanding that, that God never forgets, but then God remembers as in he remembered this promise. He remembered the promise that he made to, to Abraham. That after he, he made this promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. And after, was it 15 or 20 years, he didn't have one descendant. Abraham and Sarah were saying, this is never going to happen. And then God said, and I'm going to come back next year, this time, and you'll have a son. And Sarah laughed because she didn't believe that God could do it. And God remembered. God is the one who never forgets his people. So the wise dies just like the fool. Human wisdom cannot spare us from death. When you think about what's going on today, and keep in mind that I think there's great wisdom. Remember, in a text that we had for preaching back in the 19th century, I think the author was right. Do not preach about politics. But he didn't quite realize that 200 years later, Politics has expanded so wide it encompasses everything. You can't you can almost talk about nothing if you're gonna talk, if you're gonna avoid politics. I understand what he means about that. But you think about how in our culture, this pandemic going around, that affects the way we think, and it brings up the entire topic of death. Are we gonna survive it? Our most vulnerable people are honored, are aged, are they going to survive it? You think about the virus, and I don't have any answer. If you think the virus, uh, sorry, the, the vaccine, if you think the vaccine is good, get it. If you don't think it's good, don't get it. 
But it is, is all our hopes that this vaccine is going to solve all of our problems? Well, that's for only one virus, right? And they have many strains. And I'm not saying they're not effective for those. We don't know. We don't know. But the bottom line is, if this doesn't get you, you think about all the things that can get you. Something will get you. Something will get you. No one cheats death. And the, the end result, outside of God, verse 17, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. A Russian author, Voltaire, he had said, I hated life, but I'm afraid to die. So he had no satisfaction in life. I think what he's saying is, I want to get out of here. But he's afraid to do it. When you think about how common suicide is today, especially young men between the ages of 18 and 24, there is a fear, an inevitability about death. And that results in some type of dissatisfaction in life, some type of even a hatred of life. And for those who choose that path, what they're saying is exactly what Kohelet is saying here. So I hated life. They can't stand it. Their death is going to get you at some point. And they have no control over that. So what they're saying in suicide is at least I can quote unquote control that myself. It's the darkened mind's conclusion. If, you know what, we have fun and it's no fun and we're eventually going to die, why don't we just do that now? It's not the conclusion I want you to come to. But it is the logical conclusion of life without hope and without God. But I want you for a moment now to look up. That Ecclesiastes often talks about life under the sun. So long as we're looking down, the sun shines down as we see the light. We see the sunlight down here. We're only looking down. But what Ecclesiastes wants us to do is look up. God's wisdom is far, far greater. God's hope that he gives us in Jesus Christ is far, far greater. I hope you can understand this death is inevitable. It will come to us. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you have been given is not only hope in your death, hope in life after death, but then it comes back again so that you have hope even in this present life. All of these things are true. <clears throat> we think about this bad news. If the gospel is going to be good news, we cannot gloss over. We cannot make light. We cannot avoid the gravity of that bad news. In order for you to be treated correctly for a disease, there must be an accurate and a full diagnosis. If that cancer is going to be stopped, you've got to, to figure out how far it's spread. If you, if you only treat it in one area, but it's spread to three other areas, you're not done. And so also this bad news that God is the one who said to Adam and Eve, but of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God wasn't joking. He wasn't making some type of idle threat. Oh, 
No, I guess nothing happened. No, something happened there. Think about this death. A loss of communion with God, fellowship with God is broken. Under God's wrath and curse. Justly under all the miseries of this life. And to death itself. Perhaps defined as simply as we can. The separation of the soul from the body. And with it, the pains of hell forever. Death wasn't limited to Adam and Eve. But it spread to all of his ordinary descendants. All who have descended from man and woman normally. That everyone who's born of woman but Jesus because it wasn't by ordinary descent, that everyone else, we have that same sin nature in us. And we can start this path of, well, if I was there, I wouldn't have done the same thing. No, no, you would have. Don't say that. And besides, you have all of your own sins to deal with. So you think about the just condemnation. One man fell, so therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the good news. So the bad news is that one man chose sin and it affected everyone. But the good news is that Jesus died on the cross and he died on behalf of sinners. That we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That the one man's obedience being Jesus this was far greater than that one man's disobedience. That one man, Adam's disobedience, brought judgment to the whole world, to everyone. But Jesus' obedience brings satisfaction for his people. That all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins. That you and I no longer need to have the same view about death. Romans 5, 17 and 19 for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here, we ought to understand that there was something far greater that Jesus did. Adam failed. He fell. We all fell with him. But in Jesus Christ, as our head, if you're believing in him, then all of his righteousness is credited to you by faith. And you ask, well, wait a minute. Where do my good works fit into this? Well, we can at least say your good works don't ever save you because you're trusting entirely in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. His work is perfect. And either you're trusting in Jesus or you're trusting in yourself. If we're trusting in ourself, go back to that same conclusion from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 12 to 17, is that death also comes to us. Jesus is your only hope because he conquered death on behalf of sinners. So believe upon him, trust in him, because he alone is your hope. He alone is the one who saves us from our sins. Perhaps you might be wondering, 
those of you who are on the fringes. My goal is not to make you feel uncomfortable for discomfort's sake, but to realize how bad that bad news is, that your hope must not be in yourself. Your hope must be in someone else, someone who is perfect, and that is Jesus Christ and Him alone. So if you haven't, you've heard about Him, I hear that Jesus saves sinners. I'm trying to get you to see that you must embrace the good news as your own so that you might say, no, not just that you hear that he saves sinners, but Jesus saves even me. You realize that with this hope of Christ, it transforms your entire view. For the natural man, the natural woman, death is always bad. Because death is the loss of everything that you hold dear in this life. But for a Christian, one who is trusting in Jesus Christ, your entire view even of death changes. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What kind of idiot would say that? A fool for Christ. Someone who has believe the promise that when I die, I will be with Jesus in paradise. The fears, the doubts, the condemnation that comes my way, Jesus paid it all on the cross. There's a completely different view of death, such that he's saying to die is the gain. In the world, people understand when you die, you lose everything you've got. No one takes it with them. But by faith, you say, when I die, Everything that I'm hoping for, everything that I'm believing in, those things will come true. Then you think about the hatred of life, fearing death, so then hating life now. Well, you ask yourself, if you have that new view of death, you must also have this new view of life. That you can't fear anymore. That there's a new joy that you have Lord, what shall you have me do today? See, that was the, the big question for the Apostle Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So it's far better to be with Christ. I mean, die and to be with Christ. But there's work remaining for me here to do. There's work remaining for you to do. Serving of Christ, that your life has a new purpose. It's serving Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if there's any one thing I want you to walk away with, it's, I have no more hope in human wisdom, medical advancements, or anything of that sort for me to avoid death. Death is a reality. Death is a consequence for sin. But in Jesus Christ, I have hope for forgiveness. And I have my only hope for eternal life. And we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father. For you have given us the good news of the gospel. Father, we thank you that Jesus indeed is perfect. And that he is a perfect savior. That he saves his people by a great deliverance. Father, we pray that even little children would hear and believe this message. We pray, Father, that your people would embrace it. Father, we pray this faith would transform even our lives today. How we view life. How we view death how we view the things that happen in life. Father, we pray that you might open our eyes, that we might embrace this good news. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name.
Amen.